It's the end of the road for Puerto Rico's Arecibo Observatory. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. For nearly six decades, a 1,000-foot dish in a Puerto Rican forest has led the charge in searching for faraway planets, alien life, and tracking near-Earth asteroids. It also has cameos in television and film, including the 1995 James Bond movie Goldeneye. Now, that dish is going dark. The National Science Foundation says it's shutting down the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico due to safety concerns. The move comes after two incidents this year damaged the 57-year-old radio observatory. So what does this mean for radio astronomy? Well, first, we'll talk with Arecibo director Francisco Cordova about the move to decommission the radio telescope and what work still lies ahead for Arecibo. Then we'll talk with planetary scientist Paul Byrne about Arecibo's lasting legacy and what facilities are currently available to help fill the void left by the end of this massive radio dish. Exploring Arecibo's impact. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? Here on America's Space Station. A cable high above the Arecibo radio telescope snapped back in August, which sent pieces of the radio hardware crashing into the dish, causing extensive damage. A second cable snapped earlier this month, causing further damage and concerns about further destabilization. Earlier this month, an engineering survey found the damage to the observatory cannot be repaired without risk to construction workers and staff. And even if repairs could be done safely, the engineering team determined the structure would present long-term stability issues. Last week, the National Science Foundation, which funds the facility, announced a planned decommissioning of Arecibo Observatory's 1,000-foot telescope. The dish is managed in part by the University of Central Florida, and running the operation in Puerto Rico is Francisco Cordova. He's Arecibo's director. I spoke with Cordova last week, just hours after the NSF made the announcement to shutter the facility. He begins our conversation explaining what we know about the decision to decommission Arecibo. Um, well, um, you know, as, as you know, I think we've been we've been fighting uh, cable woes here for some time. We had uh, one of the auxiliary cables. Uh, that supports the platform in place uh, back back in August, and, and more recently we had uh, another uh, failure in, in November, early November. Um, and since then, you know, since really the first one, we've been working around the clock to get our hands around the problem and understand the cost of the failure and, and be able to quantify safety. Um, and so that you know certainly you know very high priority for us and and. Um, a high priority for NSF as well to make sure that we uh, could guarantee the safety of the staff and the personnel that were working in and around the area. And so, um, you know, unfortunately, with with um, you know such complex structures as this one and uh, you know unknown structural capabilities uh, that that perhaps have degraded over time, it's, it's very difficult to be able to quantify a level of safety. And so. Um, you know, we've, we've provided uh, NSF several options uh, that, that could be done, and, and I think they, uh, they made a decision to just the commission uh, in order to, to make sure that everybody uh, remains safe. Francisco, when we talked earlier, um, you and the team seemed pretty optimistic that, that this would come to a resolution to get repaired. Um, what do you think changed? So I think, um, you know, when the first cable failed, um, we, we understood that we had enough redundancy in the structural elements to be able to, to continue to move forward. Um, when the second cable fails, um, which was a main cable and not an auxiliary cable, 
um, this, this adds a whole other layer of complexity into the situation. And so um, the fact that that particular cable failed um, at about 60% of its capacity, uh, coupled with the fact that we have two other main cables on that same tower that have several broken strands on them, um, at this point uh, it became very difficult to quantify the structural capability. Uh, structural capacity, I guess, that's the correct term, the structural capacity. And so I think, you know, at that point we did inform, um, you know, NSF let them know that, that you know, it, it was slightly more complicated. I think, you know, there, there are still uh, some solutions out there, um, but uh, it, it becomes more complicated when, uh, when, when if you're trying to not have anybody work from the tower or the platform structure, right, so... Is there a chance that another organization could come in and, and take over this facility, or, or is this the kind of the proverbial end of the line for Arecibo? You know, I, I, I'm not sure. Um, and so, uh, you know, our we manage the facility on behalf of the National Science Foundation, uh, but, but NSF are the owners, and they're the ultimate decision makers on this. I think, um, yeah, I think if you ask me, when you look at the historical accomplishments that have been done at Arecibo, uh, you know, throughout its 60-plus uh, years of lifetime, um, they're incredible. And, and, you try, and when you also try to quantify the impact that this facility has had on STEM education, uh, not only for underrepresented groups here in Puerto Rico, but in general in the areas of astrophysics, astronomy, uh, space and atmospheric sciences, and planetary science, it's, it's, uh, it's impressive. Um, the impact this facility has had on the community, um, and so I think uh, I think the world needs more more RSCOs, uh more facilities that serve uh, not only as, as cutting edge research tools but also as uh, sources of inspiration for the next generation of researchers. I know that this is still kind of early, as as you're just getting word from the National Science Foundation. But what do we know about the decommission process itself? Uh, when will it start? How long will it take? Um, can you fill us in on that? I I don't have a clear timeline for that. Um, you know, we were we were communicated this, uh, you know, not sometime late yesterday, and and so um, there's still I think a lot of unknowns on on what is. The process for the decommissioning and um, and how NSF plans to go about it. So I, w- I would love to know more, but you know I would uh, I, w- I doubt that anything would uh, happen sooner than, than four to six weeks. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I know this is a, a premature question to ask, but do you envision that there there may be layoffs? Um, what kind of effect will this have on on the local community? Um, again, I think, you know, it's, it's still too early, early to be able to tell. Um, you know, the, the Arecibo Observatory has, has been successful in its lifetime because of the amazing staff that it has. Um, and, and I, you know, I have been personally impressed by the staff, by their commitment, by their, their, their ingenuity. Uh, and their willingness to go above and beyond to get the job done. And, and so that's why this facility has, has remained operational so long and been able to survive earthquakes and been able to survive hurricanes and been able to survive divestments. And, and so uh, it's really the, the, the people is really at the heart of the, of the facility. Um, and, and it is uh, one of our priorities to make sure that, that we find a way to, uh, you know, to maintain our staff, 
Um, there's a lot of work that we still need to go do right now. Um, there's some immediate civilization tasks that still need to be performed. Um, on the science side of the house, we have a lot of data that we haven't yet uh, had a chance to, to go over and analyze. We are working on publications. We're working on scientific proposals. And so, I mean, there's, there's still a lot to do here at RC, though. And, uh, and so for us, it's a, it's a priority to make sure the staff are taken care of. And, and only the, the 305-meter telescope is getting decommissioned, right? I mean, there are still plenty of other facilities there at the observatory. Tell us what's Correct. still going to be uh, happening. Sure. So, I mean, there's still there's, there's quite a bit of other facilities uh, or, or other equipment. We have photometers. Um, we have all-sky imagers. We have uh, LIDARs. Um, you know, we have our science and visitor center. We have a 12-meter antenna. I mean, there's there's several other capabilities that are spread out across the site that will continue to be operational. Um, and we'll certainly focus on those as, as we move forward uh, throughout this process. Um, this observatory has had a storied history, nearly six decades long. I mean, what do you think its lasting legacy will be? You know, I think... Um, I, I, it's so hard to quantify it um, because it's been so important um, across the board for uh, radio astronomy, for space and atmospheric sciences. It still serves right now as a primary defense from a potentially hazardous asteroid. Um, and, and I think uh, I think the legacy at Arecibo is really you know a legacy of of discovery, legacy of innovation. Um, that will continue to live on through the years, um, just just because it has impacted so many people in a positive way, and it has enabled us to learn so much more about the world in which we live in. And finally, Francisco, um, folks have been sharing their memories of Arecibo on social media since since the news came out um, on Friday. But I'm wondering, what was your first experience with with Arecibo? Can you share that memory? Yeah, the first time I saw a telescope, I was actually um, a middle school student and uh, had come to to visit the facility uh, as a a class trip. Um, As many other uh, students do nowadays, right? So we we do host over over 25,000 students each year. Most of them come on their class trip to to, to the observatory to, to become inspired by it and to learn a little bit more about the science we do here. And so that was my first recollection of it. Um, and I remember just being impressed by the sheer size of, of this facility. So, um, you know, both being a, a scientific marvel and an engineering marvel on how it was created and supported. And so uh, that, that's really, I think, my first memory of the facility going back to uh, the middle school. And a testament to that STEM outreach that you mentioned uh, that's so invaluable, right? Uh, absolutely. And, and so, I mean, we can um, – you talk about sources of inspiration um, and, and the next generation of, of STEM researchers and educators and, and professionals and, and facilities like Arecibo are, are a big part of that. And, um you know, it's certainly, it's certainly an inspiration for me, and as I'm sure it has been an inspiration for, for thousands of other students that go through, uh, through this facility. We've been speaking with Francisco Cordova. He's the director of the Arecibo Observatory. Francisco, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. We're continuing to follow the story of Arecibo and the impact it has had on astronomy and outreach. 
Are you a scientist or researcher who worked with Arecibo? Would you want to share your story? Well, reach out to me. I'd like to chat. You can email the show at yet at wmfe.org. And stay connected with the latest space news and conversations. Be sure to subscribe to this show as a podcast. Get it on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our website for the latest in space news. We're at wmfe.org slash space. Still to come, Arecibo's contribution to science and pop culture. And what's ahead for radio astronomy? Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? Here on America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. For England, James? No. For me. The Arecibo Observatory not only made waves in the scientific community, it had its pop culture moments too, like in the Pierce Brosnan era James Bond flick Goldeneye, were playing a critical role in the story for the search for alien life in Jodie Foster's Contact. It also played a crucial role in our tracking of near-Earth and potentially harmful asteroids, scanning deep space, and sending signals to possible alien life, letting everyone know we're here. To talk about the lasting legacy and the hardware that could help pick up Arecibo's slack, we're joined by Paul Byrne. He's an associate professor of planetary science at NC State University. Paul, thanks for joining us once again. Thank you, Brennan. Good to be back. So Arecibo, uh, it's had almost a six-decade um, history, a, a storied history, and just an incredible-looking you know, engineering marvel. Uh, right. But let's go back. What, what was Arecibo's purpose? What, what was um, this observatory actually looking for? So Arecibo was a radio telescope, uh, and it was uh, for a very long time, almost its entire life, the largest such telescope in the world. And Arecibo was basically one of our tools, one of our most powerful tools of looking into deep space uh, to look back uh, very, very deeply into past time in the cosmos, but also to look at uh, worlds in our own solar system. It was one of the most effective ways we had of, of understanding the universe around us. Uh, all done through radio telescopy, and and kind of talk a little bit about um, you know observing through using a radio telescope. How is this different from let's say you know looking at visible light or, or whatnot? What sets this method aside from others? Right. So so visible wavelength uh, it, it's it's much narrow uh, band of 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 wavelengths in the in the electromagnetic spectrum. Um, we also have telescopes, for example, that are are optical but might look in the near infrared or the ultraviolet, for example. Uh, Arecibo was able to span a huge portion of the electromagnetic spectrum by virtue of the fact that it was a radio telescope. Uh, I think it was able to look at something from between uh, three hundred megahertz to ten gigahertz, a, a huge, much much broader range of wavelengths than say an optical telescope could do and one of the one of the advantages of doing that is first off we can we can detect radio sources in deep space that optical telescopes can't detect um, but a big thing is 
RSEGO played a, an important role in our detection or in our search for what we call near-Earth objects and near-Earth asteroids, of which uh, there are a subset of near-Earth objects, potentially hazardous asteroids that might one day impact Earth. And a lot of those objects are very dark and they are not that easy to resolve with a visible wavelength telescope because if they're not emitting light, which they're not unless they're a star, we then we have to, we can only see them if they, if they reflect light, reflect sunlight. Um, and these things are often very small and very dark, but with a radio telescope, you can basically put a radio beam out there and look to see what's happening uh, and, and listen back. And it's in, it's in a way of, of detecting objects that are difficult to, to, to uh, examine and explore with, with optical telescopes. So it gave us an enormous advantage over optical telescopes for certain kinds of observations that we couldn't do otherwise. So not just stuff that's in deep space, but smaller things that aren't emitting light that might be closer to us like these near-Earth asteroids, right? Absolutely. And, and a myriad of things in the solar system besides. For example, Arecibo was used, I had colleagues who would frequently use it to observe features on Venus. Uh, Arecibo was used to determine the rotation rate of Mercury. Uh, in fact, Arecibo was, was instrumental in detecting, in the discovery, the fact that we have found water ice at the poles of Mercury, which is sort of, you know, kind of striking discovery when you consider that it's the planet closest to the sun. So Arecibo had absolutely very, very relevant, uh, it was very relevant to solar system observations, not just for, you know, defense of, of potentially Earth-crossing asteroids, but but worlds in the solar system. And then, like you say, stuff in deep, deep space, identifying pulsars, for example. Uh, again, it just, it had such a broad reach, partly because of its size. I mean, until 2016, when a similar installation was established in, in China, this was the largest uh, radio telescope, the largest single aperture telescope in the world. Uh, it, it, its value to science, I think, is incalculable. And, and it is a real, real loss the scientific community, not just in the U.S., but internationally, that Arecibo is going to be decommissioned. I wrote this question, Paul, um, and, and now thinking back to just what we've been talking about. The question is, you know, what has this impact on astronomy been over mm -hmm. the years with Arecibo? And I just want you to keep in mind, this is only a 28 minute long show, <laughs> but it, it sounds like that there it, it's it's really been instrumental in, in pretty much, um, you know, every sect of, of astronomy, right? Oh, hugely. Yeah. Uh, for example, detecting things like protomolecules in space, uh, detecting uh, first solid evidence that neutron stars were discovered. Uh, in fact, Arecibo played a really important role in something that we don't perhaps talk about as much as we could, which is SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And Arecibo sent in 1974 the famous Arecibo message, which was basically kind of a binary signal sent out there that contains information on, on DNA and a stick figure of what humans look like. And, and, and it was our first uh, concerted effort to actually yeah, consciously send a, a directed radio beam into space uh, with, with the hope that somebody somewhere may eventually uh, pick it up. Uh, the signal was transmitted to a globular cluster, cluster which is about 25,000 light years away. So of course the signal uh, dispatched uh, 46 years ago still has a long way to go to its destination. But RSU played an important role in SETI as well. So if you consider the outreach component of that uh, the, the fundamental question we have of are we alone, which Arecibo was trying to tackle, the, its contributions to solar system geology and planetary geology and planetary science, and then its contributions to astronomy. Again, I don't think you can overstate just how important this telescope has been. Um, this was a question that we had from one of our uh, Facebook um, followers. And, and you mentioned, you know, this is uh, Arecibo was used in the search for, for life outside our, our world. Um, but we've sent that signal out. Um, what happens if, if alien life tries to call us back and this, this thing is offline? <laughs> Are we going to be able to hear them? <laughs> 
Right. So, so we have had, fortunately, this wasn't the only radio telescope we have, right? There are, we have the very large array. There are other uh, arrays internationally owned or, or operated by the European Southern Observatory, for example, or other space agencies around the world that are radio telescopes that are capable of detecting messages if for some reason we were able to intercept one from another intelligence somewhere in the, in the cosmos. So losing Arecibo doesn't necessarily mean that we lose our ability to listen into such signals or to listen to replies to the signals we've sent. Um, so I don't think we're going to suffer that way. Uh, what I think we will suffer from is the loss of the the broad capabilities of Arecibo and what the telescope could do. Um, and, and it is my earnest hope that we get a replacement pledge, particularly with this new incoming administration, very soon. This was an important resource for the United States astronomical and planetary science community. And, and I really, really hope that we can, if indeed in the end it, it, it is the uh, NSF, the National Science Foundation's ultimate determination that this can, that the telescope cannot be safely replaced. Prepared. And the Army Corps of Engineers were in there looking at it, you know, with this loss of these cables. And, and now it seems that any of the remaining cables that are suspending the, 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 uh, the telescope itself may, may break at any time. If it comes to pass that really there is no saving the observatory and it needs to be, repl- uh, it needs to be decommissioned, that, that we must have a commissioned uh, replacement for it because the science we can do with the telescope this capable like we've been talking about in terms of the range of disciplines that it can assist is, is like I say, incalculable. We need to make sure that there's something following it up. And I'll say too, that even for the you know, majority of folks listening to this who, who are not radio astronomers or who are not planetary scientists, Arecibo has had a huge role in popular culture. It was used in the 1995 movie Goldeneye. And of course, if you've seen the movie Contact, 1997 Contact with um, uh, Jodie Foster, uh, Arecibo plays a very important role in the plot of that film it's where our main character our, our heroine Eleanor Arroway works uh, for a long time so you know, a lot of people without necessarily knowing it have seen this telescope in movies in popular culture and like I say it's just an absolutely heartbreaking loss and I really hope that if it cannot be uh, fixed if it cannot be repaired that we get a replacement pledged sooner rather than later mm-hmm. you mentioned earlier in our conversation about how um you know, Arecibo has been used to kind of look at things that are closer to home. We talked mm-hmm. about some observations on Venus and Mercury, but I mean, what's been most fascinating for me is it's kind of its near Earth asteroid observations mm-hmm. and, and being able to see these things um, and get a look at what they're made of. Um, are there other facilities or observatories that will be able to fill this void um, that Arecibo will be leaving of, of near-Earth asteroid observations and tracking? Are, are we just in the dark at this point, or, or are there other systems online that will kind of keep us in the loop as to what's whizzing by our, our planet? Sure. No, absolutely. There are other telescope facilities. For example, there's the Very Large Array, which is in New Mexico, uh, the, the European Southern Observatory. Uh, there are uh, lots of, there's even a, a, a spacecraft mission that is being developed uh, to ultimately put a camera into Earth orbit that would look for these things. So, no, we're not going to be blind with having lost Arecibo for, for near-Earth uh, object characterization. Of course, the more facilities we have, the better it will be and the, the higher the likelihood is that we're going to be able to find everything in time to make sure that you know none of them is going to pose a risk or identifying those that might and then taking some mitigating steps. Um, at the same time, it's sort of a case where, you know, better safe than sorry. And particularly because some of these objects, even ones that are relatively modest, uh, let's say 100 meters across, can still cause 
catastrophic damage if they were to hit a city, for example, or, or you know, a shallow continental shelf and they would set up a mega tsunami that could kill millions of people. The more facilities we have tracking these things, the better. So we are certainly losing some of our capability with Arecibo. On the other hand, this telescope was used so much by people that, you know, getting time on it was competitive. Getting it's like, for example, Hubble or or the soon to be flown James Webb Space Telescope. These telescopes are national assets. They tend to do a lot of different investigations, and so folks can can put in proposals to get time on them. So even though we're losing Arecibo, it doesn't mean that it spent all its time looking for near Earth objects, for example. So it was still going to spend a lot of its time doing cosmological studies, for example. Um, but no, we're not blind. But like I say better safe than sorry the more resources we have put into this very important question about what amounts to planetary defense the better and it's just another uh gap void that our CBO's decommissioning will leave uh if if a new administration does come in if the national science foundation says you know we're going to rebuild or we're going to pledge uh, a new radio observatory um and you as a planetary scientist have a blank check uh what are some of the things that you would like to see in Arecibo 2.0, what would be the best case scenario for a replacement or, or an upgrade to come online? So certainly a telescope that is able to uh, have as much time as possible for the planetary community, both nationally and internationally, uh, however that's managed logistically, to be able to go and probe the darkest, deepest parts of space that we can see, but also to complement planetary science observations, to look at things like the rotation rates of planets, uh, and then, of course, to continue building upon our, our, our survey of near-Earth asteroids and near-Earth objects. So I think Arecibo was plenty capable. I would like to see something like Arecibo be brought back online, but I want to make sure that it, we have as many people as possible being able to access it and be able to get time on that telescope to really make sure that we're, we're using it to its full advantage. But honestly, I would be delighted just to see this telescope come back in, in its... I mean. The more powerful the transmitter you have on board, for example, uh, the farther into space you can reach. Um, but honestly, I would just I would settle for them repairing as Arecibo, so we don't lose this resource. Uh, and finally, Paul, um, we talked about its impact on astronomy and some of the work that um, your colleagues have used it for. But when you think back on Arecibo, I mean, what connection do you have? What what is what is its legacy uh, to you? To me, more than anything else, Arecibo is a, is an iconic structure that tells us that we can do incredible things when we put our minds to it. Just to see that dish and how big it is. Uh, to me, that, that just, I know, I know so many people who got into planetary science because they were inspired by films in which this telescope turned up. Think about its ability to reach into deep space and to send signals to people that might be out there that aren't us. That's its legacy, more than any of the individual scientific discoveries it's made. And I think it's the thing I, I, I'm going to miss and I feel I'll, I'll grieve for the most. And like I said, getting a replacement or, or, or refurbished telescope means that we don't necessarily lose the capability to continue to inspire people, just as Arecibo has inspired me. Paul Byrne is an associate professor of planetary science at NC State University. Paul, thanks again for joining us. My pleasure, Brandon. Thank you very much. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to stay connected online. Visit WMFE.org slash space or give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram. Both those handles are at A-W-T-Y space. On Facebook, just search for the Are We There Yet podcast or shoot me an email, yet at WMFE.org. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE, America's space station. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. The show's intern is Nelly Ontiveros. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. 
Thanks for listening.